0: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Bill and I'm here with Steve. How are you doing, Steve? Pretty good, how are you? I'm all right. <laughs> what we're gonna to do today and over the course of many future episodes is give you the experience of what it's like to be in the woods, in the field, and on the trail. Each month, we pick a natural history topic, research the science behind that topic, and then take you out to a natural spot to share with you everything that we've learned. I almost just fell
1: over. <laughs> we're in a pretty natural spot right now. <laughs> we
0: are. <laughs> so we are in Chestnut Ridge County Park. Yeah. And this is, like most episodes, we are about a half an hour
1: southeast of Buffalo. Mm-hmm.
0: And this is the site of our Cooper's Hawk bonus episode. Oh, yeah. It's right? also
1: the site of a frolf core. Oh, no. So, yeah, frolf, right? Frisbee golf. <laughs>
0: yeah. So you may hear, folks, the sound of frisbee golf in the distance <laughs>
1: or you know the noise frisbees make yeah. when they fly through the air <laughs> I, I was referring to the, people. the kids yeah i <laughs> say kids, kids but adults adults play frisbee golf <laughs> kids at heart yeah
0: all right so folks we've had quite an eventful couple months since the last time that
1: we recorded an episode yeah we tried to record this earlier but then uh bill's whole family got coronavirus <laughs> <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> So my wife and
0: daughter both came down with COVID over the past month. And the shocking part was my wife had been vaccinated. Mm-hmm. So she was one of the lucky slash unlucky <laughs> <laughs> breakthrough cases. Well, I guess uh, ultimately lucky if she's not having any exactly. <laughs> breathing issues. And and yeah. we do realize that since she was vaccinated, that probably helped keep her symptoms mild. Right. Honestly, when she came down with some cold system, symptoms, we were thinking, oh, it's just a cold. And then... One day, she lost her sense of taste. Oh, no. It's like, surely it's a cold. (laughs) Oh, I can't taste this. (laughs) Yeah. We knew that was a problem. Yep. So, uh, that is what's been going on. I had to quarantine for almost... They say 10
1: days, right? Oh, but because there was multiple
0: cases in your family. Right. It was my daughter, and then a few days later, my wife, and I had to quarantine 10 days past her 10 days. (laughs) So, that's Uh how they do things here in, in New York State currently. Thankfully, now I am vaccinated. My quarantine is finally over. I can yep. rejoin humanity.
1: Well, it better have been over a couple of days ago because we did a birdathon together. That's right. <laughs> the fralfer. <sound,
0: laughs> there's a fralfer <laughs> shouting in the background. Uh-huh. So yeah, Steve and I just did a, a birdathon for our local chapter, the Audubon Society, the Buffalo Audubon Society, and we've went along with our friend rich and uh, birder extraordinaire tom kerr and yeah we, both we, friends of the podcast Yep. and we yep. basically followed tom around while he <laughs> <laughs> identified birds and yelled at us for talking
1: mostly <laughs> mostly me i have a pretty strong constitution though so i could take it <laughs> i wasn't hurt at all <laughs> now
0: what i do want to do right now before i forget because we always seem to forget is let's talk about what do we see around us describe the scenery
1: Sure, yeah. One of the biggest things we're seeing is that we're sort of in a hemlock forest, a beach hemlock. Do we see maples? Yep. Yeah, I think there's some maples yep. around. Yeah, see a maple right over there. Beach maple, hardwood forest, some hemlocks in there. Yep. It's a bit hilly here, which is nice because I feel like we don't always have kind of, I shouldn't say, you know what, maybe it's not that it's hilly, it's just that there's a little riparian area that cuts yeah. through uh, this little bit of forest here. So Chestnut Ridge has quite a few little creeks
0: and streams cutting little gorges and gullies. Mm-hmm. Uh, through the landscape, and this is a, a county park, so it's relatively developed. Um, mm-hmm. you got lots of picnic shelters, sledding hill, but they do have a really nice patch of woods, and I do have to say, I, I may offend some of the frolfers out there, but I may have mentioned this in our last oh. episode here, but I always have a grudge against this frolf course because not too far, probably about 300 yards to the north of where we're standing, there was a patch of woods where, when I was doing environmental ed, we would often do programs here at Chestnut Ridge. Mm-hmm. And there was, without fail, at the right time of year, a great horned owl nest oh. that we could take groups to. And the owl was fairly tolerant of us bringing
1: a, you right. know, a group of kids close by. And when mm-hmm. they put in the frolf course, it was gone. Yeah, just imagining those kids, you know, looking at the owl, trying to hit it with the frisbee. <laughs> I will say one thing about this woods though, just looking around it, I know it's the spring still, it's a pretty bare understory. I, so I am seeing some trout lily, presumably yep. the uh, yellow trout lily, because yep. I, I almost never see the white one, although we do have some spots where it is around here. Sure. But other than that, I don't really see anything. No. I mean, maybe some small beach you know, saplings, I yep. guess. But... Not much else, though. So there are a lot yeah. of deer here.
0: Yeah. They probably keep the understory relatively browsed. Yep. Um, it is, what, May 11th? Yep. So I think that's the date. So here in, in western New York, where we are, we are kind of nearing the end of spring ephemeral season. So a lot of those early spring wildflowers are kind of wrapping up right now. Yeah. And spring is well underway, but here we've had relatively cold weather. Oh yeah.
1: So things have been kind of slow to get going. Yeah, it's in like the mid forties right now, mid yeah. to upper forties. We're so wearing gloves. And yeah. <laughs> I keep a coat in my trunk for, for days like today.
0: But it's a nice evening to be out. The sun is out. We had a little rain earlier, but I think we're gonna be okay. Hopefully it won't be too windy. Yeah. So our topic for today, I do want to thank one of our listeners for this
1: topic. This is one that was recommended by our friend Jerry Thurn. Man, we uh, thanks for thanks for taking a suggestion, Bill, because uh, <laughs> I, I almost always think of myself when I'm doing an episode, which, you know, they're few and far between, but... <laughs> <laughs> the ones that you do.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> so Jerry recommended this quite a while ago, but when I was going over topics that we could possibly do for this episode, this one jumped out at me. This is focusing on
1: the Northern Flicker. Oh, cool. You told me this a couple of days ago. I already forgot. I'm on the, on the drive here. I was trying to remember what you told me.
2: What was this giving you back? Yeah.
1: So
0: Northern Flicker, some of you out there may know it as the yellow shafted Flicker or mm-hmm. the red shafted Flicker. Yep. We'll, we'll get into those two names. Um, do you know the scientific name? You're so good with bird scientific name. No, nope. Steve's shaking his head.
1: Nope. You know it at one time. I know. At one yep. time I spent every day trying to learn avian taxonomy <laughs> I would I would just walk the neighborhood with flashcards trying to learn all of it that's, that's beautiful. Is about I think I started eight years ago and then I roughly ended that seven years ago <laughs> <laughs> well the the scientific name for this species is Colaptes
0: oratus, aure, which means the golden chiseler Ooh, the golden chiseler. Yep. So this is a woodpecker. It's a medium-sized member of that family. Pick a day. Very no, good. <laughs> I know some of it That's still. It's the woodpecker family, pick a day. Now, hopefully, most of our listeners from North America, you are within the range of the northern flicker. Mm-hmm. At least it's seasonal range. If not, it's your round range. But just in case for our more worldly listeners in other countries <laughs> or people that may not know, I do want to give a description of the bird. So it's generally brown with black bars on its back and wings. It is about a foot long and its wingspan can be about a foot and a half, 18 inches to about 21 inches. So larger than your downy or your hairy. It has a necklace-like black patch on its upper breast and on the lower breast and the belly, it's beige with black spots. Now the males, they're gonna have a black or a red Mustachial stripe. Isn't that a great word? <laughs> uh-huh. So this is a stripe. If you can imagine the beak, where the beak attaches to the head, there's a, a stripe going backwards from that point, backwards from the mouth.
1: Yeah, it's almost like a... Doesn't it almost have like a teardrop shape to it?
0: It's an elongated Yeah, teardrop. elongated
1: teardrop. Yeah. yeah.
0: The tail is dark on top, but it transitions to a white rump. And if you know about flickers, that is a very common field mark that people use to identify the flicker in flight when he takes off you <laughs> have big white patch right. on the butt is just you can't mistake it for yeah, anything else
1: and honestly you usually don't notice these things until you flushed one and it's flying away from you right yeah
0: but it is a bird where you can just look at that you yep. see
1: that you say flicker right Th- there's two times you see it or, or sorry there's two times you experience it one is when you see that white rump patch flying away from you because you just flushed it or you hear it off in the distance, because those are the, at least for me, those are like 99% of the time, that's what I'm experiencing with the flicker. And we're gonna talk about the call in just a moment. So there
0: are bright colors in the bird's wings and the tail. In Western North America, it's gonna be salmon red, kind of a pinkish red color. Mm-hmm. When its wings are open, you can see it in the underwings, And then it's lemon yellow in the east. So this bird is native to most of North America, parts of Central America, as well as Cuba. You're typically going to find it in open habitats near trees. And this can include woodlands, edges, yards, and parks. And I was surprised to find out that in the western U.S., it can be found in mountain forests all the way up to tree line. Hmm. It is one of the few woodpecker species that migrate here in North America. So we don't see them here during the winter typically.
1: Right. We see like Downies and hairies visiting feeders and stuff. Yeah, but but
0: they they could be around. Technically, we are in their year-round range. Mm -hmm. So typically up in Canada, that's where their summer grounds are going to be you're not going to find them there uh in the winter time but for most of the lower 48 they are a year-round resident and then it's weird like down in most of texas uh, the southwest part of california southern arizona that's where it winters but they don't you don't find it there the rest of the year Hmm. you know what Uh, in utah i definitely saw the red shafted yes yes because that's that's the west right and in a couple of the accounts that I was reading, it did say, I wrote this down word for word, it said, one of the delights of traveling cross country is the <laughs> moment when the northern flickers change from the yellow shafted to the red shafted. Mm-hmm. And again, we'll get in that in just a moment. Now there are over a hundred common names for the northern flicker, and we're going to go through them all right now. Perfect. <laughs> but I, I did want to share some of them. The yellow hammer, this is not to be confused with the European yellow hammer, different, uh, mm-hmm. different bird altogether. It's also called the clap, the gaffer, uh, the hairy wicket, the hey ho, the wake up, the walk up, the wick up, the yare-up, or the gawker bird. And I have never heard any of those common names. Used. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I, 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 th- those have to be related to its call, right?
0: Exactly. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Most of those, in what I was reading, it said those are attempts to imitate its call. Mm. And what is the call, Steve? Can you do it for us? Nope. Keek, <laughs> keek, 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 keek. Kee- That's pretty good. <laughs> it sounds like a sustained laugh yeah right now we're gonna play the call right now and i'm gonna hold this up to the mic typically i i put this in post-production yeah we're gonna try to do it right here in the field using my phone we'll see how this works Uh all right so pretty long pretty sustained right yep And, and it'll go it'll you know do it once, do it again, do it again. Now, yeah. we've talked about this on episodes before where uh-huh. we hear something like that and we're trying to determine if it's a... Pileated or a flicker. Right. Yeah. So what's the difference?
1: Uh, <laughs> you know what? I was actually just listening to, I think it was our coyote episode. Uh-huh. And I think maybe I had said that I think the flicker goes longer it, it goes on for like an extra few notes than the uh than the pileated but yeah
0: so if you're a noob that doesn't really know what you're talking about
1: yeah no, just no but i was gonna say that is me though because uh i think i get it confused you know honestly for years i knew one of them was longer i could never remember which yeah. one and is that even true it yes it okay. is a
0: good rule of thumb typically the flicker has a longer key 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 call okay and the point you want to remember, though, about the flicker call is that it's monotone. It doesn't change its pitch mm. usually. It's very even. Right. The pileated call is a ki ki ki, kind of a laugh, but. But it kind of rises and falls a bit. Often it's shorter. Okay. So you will have some people say, oh, the flicker call is longer, the pileated call is shorter. It doesn't always work that way. Okay. So just going through calls on the internet, even understanding the app on my phone, like, There are pileated calls on here that are just as long as a flicker call, right? All right. But I do want to give the listeners the chance. So I'm going to play the flicker call again, listen to the pitch and how it stays relatively the same. Mm -hmm. It's pretty long and now I'm going to play the pileated call and I want you to listen to how the pitch changes and even the speed changes. there's probably some people out there saying what are you kidding me (laughs) they sounded exactly the same right but if you listen back to them i mean it's like anything that the differences may not be obvious at first
1: yeah definitely there were different pauses between the notes you could definitely tell that like it the pilated was a bit slower at first then it speeds up and then it's slower again right so yeah you can definitely tell that
0: so if you hear that call and it's short Mm -hmm. you know just a few notes it's probably a pileated, you can't say for sure, Right. Uh, but if you do hear a longer one, if it r- maintains kind of a steady pace, a steady beat, more likely a flicker, mm-hmm. okay? All right, so for decades, these guys were regarded as separate species with the red shafted flicker in the west and the yellow shafted flicker here in the east.
1: But maybe before we get into that, maybe let's move to a different spot. I, I feel like the-, the wind is so inconsistent here. Sure. Let's find a better one. All right. Okay. Alright, so now that we've picked up some ticks probably, <laughs> oh.
0: we found a, a nice beech tree here that hopefully will provide us some uh, shelter from
1: the wind. Yeah.
0: So
2: we're No it's good? Not,
1: no, no, no. The beech tree is not that good. Usually if you see a tree with a bunch of mushrooms growing off of it and a lot of damage from woodpeckers and whatnot, <laughs> it won't maybe, be alive much longer. Maybe we'll find a flicker.
0: <laughs> That's actually why I picked Chestnut Ridge. <laughs> I was hoping we'd, we'd be able to at least see a flicker or hear one. Yeah. All right. So these guys were considered separate species for a long time. But then in, back in 1982, they were officially lumped into one species, the northern flicker. <laughs> and that's why you'll hear people sometimes refer to the yellow shafted or the red shafted. And again, yellow shaft is here in the east, red shaft is in the west. So as you already mentioned, Steve, they, they do belong to the woodpecker family. Pick a day. So we're going to get into breeding now. Did you know I found several different sources that say this. Maybe you know something different, but that all members of Piccaday, all woodpeckers, nest in cavities.
1: Oh, I, I, I didn't know that.
0: So I tried to find exceptions just because when I hear something like, they all do this. I'm like, right. well, there's got to be an exception. I couldn't find one. So <laughs> usually they nest in trunks or in branches. They typically will excavate a hole into rotten wood that's surrounded by sound timber. They can use man-made structures, including wooden utility poles, northern flickers, will typically use trees but they can also use fence posts birdhouses, and they've even occasionally been found in old earthen burrows that have been vacated by belted kingfishers or bank swallows
1: oh i guess i didn't realize kingfishers had terrestrial nests i didn't realize that either interesting
0: (laughs) so they do prefer to excavate their own home Mm -hmm. but they will reuse or repair damaged or abandoned nests Hmm. and of course they're creating habitat for other cavity nesters right which is a good thing but that also means for them there's competition from these other cavity dwellers so flickers can sometimes be driven out by other woodpeckers by swallows or
1: owls Mm -hmm. because don't owl aren't they cavity nesters too but they're not making their own screech
0: owls yeah right there are some kinds of owls that are cavity nesters not all of them Mm -hmm. but I don't know if the cavity size of a flicker and the hole would be good for a screech owl Mm mm-hmm so the last one I was going to share though was European
1: starlings. Oh. So of course that non-native right. species. So right. one
0: more reason to hate on them they drive out
1: And uh, one more slickers. reason to hate Shakespeare. <laughs> I I also feel like the starlings might just do it for fun. They don't even need the nesting space. <laughs> so you you got <laughs> to you got to Fill us in on the Shakespeare reference. Yeah. So I guess there was something like maybe like a hundred different species of birds that were mentioned in Shakespearean literature okay. that were all released in New York City at one point. And the starlings are one of the ones that really, really uh, benefited from that. <laughs> yes,
2: that's a good way to put
1: it. Yeah. It's a positive spin
0: on it. So there was some group, right, that... Yeah. Made it their mission to release here all the birds mentioned
1: in Shakespeare. Right. I don't and, know
0: if they released them all in New York City.
1: And I don't know if there was a hundred species. I, right. For some reason, that number popped into my head. But I will say, I was about to say, and I bet they weren't ecologists. <laughs> but <laughs> we know so many ecology stories of like, right. "Ooh, let's plant some multi-flora rose," or you know, I, I think to stabilize this, was, this bank or something. Yeah. I
0: think when this was going on, ecology wasn't even a science. Oh, did. that's <laughs> a good point. I forgot yeah. how
1: young ecology is. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: So it takes. The mated pair about one to two weeks to excavate the cavity, and typically it's about thirteen to sixteen inches deep, hmm. so between a foot to a foot and a half. It widens at the bottom to make rooms for the eggs and the adult, and there's really no nesting materials except there might be some wood chips left over from the excavation that the eggs and the chicks may be resting on.
1: The eggs don't need <laughs> camouflage <laughs> to, to call that a nest. There's usually not a nest, but <laughs> if it's they were messy about nesting it, nesting
0: cavity, right? <laughs> uh-huh. So, now this one, I tried to find some data to back this up, but there was a reference, this might have been from Wikipedia, that said, the white color of the eggs, because they're just pure white, Uh helps parents to see them in dim
1: light. Interesting. You know, aren't owl eggs famously white, too? Aren't they usually not uh, really spotted and camouflaged? You know, I wonder if we looked at
0: cavity nesters, like, what proportion? Do they have a greater proportion of just, like, bright white eggs? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Be interesting, yeah. Um, The clutch of Flickers, is large, but it can be very variable. Anywhere from two to 13 eggs, but the average is six to eight. Hmm. They have the second largest of any North American woodpecker egg. Who do you think is the only bigger one?
1: Out of the woodpeckers? Yeah. it was the only bigger Pileated? Yeah, pileated.
0: Mm-hmm. Now I was surprised though. I looked that up. I'm like, okay, how big is a pileated egg? It's about 1.3 inches long by one inches wide. Which really isn't that big but i guess when you compare it to say like robins or chickadees or things like that proportionally it's much larger right um incubation both sexes incubate so i just wanted to repeat that right (laughs) that's nice of them in a lot of woodpecker species both sexes incubate and that is fairly rare within birds
1: yeah um, I mean usually you have these deadbeat dads that just <laughs> bail no or or actually sometimes isn't it the reverse too in some species sure right? don't, don't the dads do it up and the the ladies go on and maybe have up. more families yeah
0: so the let's talk about that though we may have mentioned this in our bird banding episode
1: hold on a second deadbeat dad's not in any way some type of Offensive term that people use. Correct? Only to deadbeat dads. Okay, yeah. I mean, <laughs> nowadays I know. you don't even know. I just I, I would think that there would be nothing, no nothing attached to that. But so if someone out there can tell us why that's a, an offensive term, let <laughs> yeah. us know. We'll we'll look at the Patreon numbers. <laughs> if they go down, I'll know I made a mistake.
0: I think in our in our bird banding episode, we did talk about how one of the ways we we sex birds when we catch them is we look for a brood patch. So many of the female songbirds here in North America, when they are incubating eggs, they lose their feathers, not all their feathers, but their under feathers mm-hmm. on their breast. So they can move, open up that, that kind of outer layer of feathers and expose their skin mm-hmm. to have skin to egg contact that's right. gonna to increase heat transfer.
1: Yeah, So skin, we like... skin's a better insulator than feathers. I mean, feathers yeah. are specifically Evolved to not really be great insulators, right? Or sorry, yeah, conductors. There you go. Yeah, I used the wrong word. Something <laughs> that is a good conductor, heat is transferred through it very easily. Right. Something that's a poor conductor, that that could be maybe you know like the down in your jacket would be a poor conductor, right? Right. Yeah.
0: So we we like to say that birds sit on eggs, but they're actually not sitting on them. They're they're putting their their chest on them. <laughs> right. Yeah, they're not sitting on them at all. Right. <laughs> Even though it looks like they are. Mm-hmm. So one of the ways, one of the interesting things about woodpeckers is that the males also develop a brood patch. And there are other mm. species that do it as well. I think
1: some of the vireos do maybe. I know when we band sometimes, uh, uh, a BP, a brood patch, <laughs> isn't right. always... Uh, yeah,
0: yeah, and our, our head bander, Erin, there are times where she'll say, oh, how do you sex that? how'd you sex that bird? And we'll say, by a brood patch. And she'll be like, ah, that's one of the species where the males right. get a brood patch as well. So with Flickers, the male not only does some of the incubation of eggs, it also does most of the nest excavation. So the topic of our episode, we're not just talking about flickers. Mm. Jerry Thurn, someone who helps us with bird banding, he sent me an article a number of years ago about sex roles in flickers mm. and how that deals with breeding, with raising young, because flickers are somewhat exceptional. Uh-huh. Woodpeckers are exceptional that both parents are active in raising young, in rearing the young. The males take part in the incubation, which isn't that common among birds. But flickers are even more exceptional because they're one of the few biparental birds, so where both parents take part in uh-huh. rearing, where males contribute significantly more care than the females. Hmm. Male flickers do most of the nest building, most of the incubation, most of the feeding. Okay? they do even more nest sanitation than females,
1: more removal of waste. You're kind of worrying me a little bit because I just feel like this is a horrible, like this species is a horrible thing for someone like Jordan Peterson to find out about. (laughs) 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 About this, uh, that households need fathers or whatever. He's going to jump on this thing. Him and Ben Shapiro or something. are. (laughs) Again, we just lost half our... (laughs) (laughs) And then we lost half. Well, Yeah. yeah, but I
0: think, yeah, he may... Jordan Peterson may have a few issues with this bird. So oh, we'll, perfect. we'll get into it.
1: So <laughs> we got to beat him to it.
0: <laughs> typically among woodpeckers, the pairs are going to be monogamous. So there's 22 North American species. 20 of those species are typically monogamous with mm-hmm. a few species breeding cooperatively. So we're going to get into this. So let's see if Steve knows the, these terms. So what is polygamy, polyandry, and polygyny?
1: Okay, so polygamy, uh, polygamy is um, polygamy, multiple mm-hmm. ladies, <laughs> polyandry, is that one of the ones you said? So what's polyandry? Polyandry is multiple males, because andry. Right. Um, and then poly. well, I, I I always said it wrong my whole life, po- polygyny or p- poly- Polygyny. Polygyny, okay. Yeah. That one is just the general term for multiple spouses or whatever. You almost had it right. Oh, really? Okay. Ugh.
0: So polygamy is one sex and multiple of the other sex. Uh, okay? okay. So polyandry is when you have one female and right. multiple males. Okay. Polygyny is when you have one male and multiple females. Oh,
1: gyny Okay. Yeah, I did. I did screw that up a little bit. All right. Okay. So
0: let, let's say that again. Polygamy is just the overall term, kind okay. of the umbrella term, mm-hmm. where you have multiple spouses. Polyandry is when you have one female with multiple males. Polygyny is one male with multiple females. Right. And what's bigamy? Bigamy? Yeah. Is it (laughs) related at all? (laughs) Bigamy is just bad news. That's when you get married and and your spouse doesn't know that you're already married.
1: Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe they do. I don't know. Yeah.
0: (laughs) That's just humans. Okay. Uh, And also when we talk about polyamory, Uh all right, that's also typically applied to humans because that's like multiple loves. Yeah. And we're not applying that to, to animals.
1: Mm -hmm. Just our own lives, we apply that.
0: Right. (laughs) Bill and I are both (laughs) polyamorous. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So polyandry, we're going to focus on that because kind of the leadoff study in our episode today is a researcher who found polyandry among flickers. Okay. For the longest time, flickers were just assumed to be like most woodpeckers, monogamous. Mm -hmm. But there was a study in 2002, we're going to get to a second, where a female was raising two broods with two separate males. Now that has been reported in the West Indian woodpecker, mm-hmm. which obviously is found in the West Indies, and also in the acorn woodpecker. This is a species found- In the West, in the areas right? In the West, Mexico, yeah. Central America. That, that woodpecker can be polygynandrous.
1: Yeah, multiple men, multiple, I shouldn't say men, what I'm talking about. <laughs> multiple males, multiple females. Right, yeah. so that's, cooperative breeding.
0: Mm-hmm. In the acorn woodpecker you can have groups of up to 15 individuals sharing mates, breeding together, and helping raise the young together. Hmm. And often young birds from previous years may stay behind to help raise the groups young. Hmm. Okay? So there's lots of theories about why that happens. We're not going to get into that here just because we don't have the time. So again we're going to focus on polyandry. Right. One female having multiple males. So this is, this is one of the few episodes, I, I talked about this with you the other day, where this is one of the few episodes where I'm gonna be using uh, uh, more than one paper from one researcher. Oh, okay. Uh, because mm-hmm. in my research, I basically found this woman is like the Flickr researcher mm-hmm. here in North America, at least the one I could find, Karen Wybee, And most of her research is based on a study site in British Columbia. Mm-hmm. So in 2002, she published the first reported case of classical polyandry in the North American woodpecker, the northern flicker. This was in the Wilson Journal of Ornithology. So she was just studying northern flicker nesting at her study site, and she found a female. We're gonna call her Bernice. Bernice, (laughs) (laughs) okay. She incubated eggs at nest A. So we're gonna have nest A and nest B. Mm -hmm. So Bernice incubated at nest A with male number one. We're gonna call him, let's say, Bill. (laughs) Bill and Bernice? Why bees? (laughs) Hang on. So they were incubating in late May. Uh Then she was recorded at another nest about a quarter mile away, incubating eggs with another male. We're going to call him Steve. (laughs) (laughs) So Steve's first nesting attempt at another nest failed on May 28th due to eviction by starlings. Mm. Okay? Yep. His original mate was not seen again. So he re-nested with Bernice, who laid her first egg at nest B on June 4th. Mm -hmm. So about a week later. Timing at the two nests was staggered. Bernice took incubation shifts and fed nestlings at both nests. While laying eggs in nest B, she continued daytime incubation shifts at nest A. The chicks at nest A, they hatched on June 8th, and Bernice spent most of her time incubating next nest B leaving dad to kind of feed the chicks Mm -hmm. until those chicks hatched on june 20th Hmm. so by june 20th both both broods had hatched between june 20th and july 2nd she fed chicks at both nests but only did a small percentage okay or i should say a smaller percentage Hmm. so at one nest nest a there was a period where they observed over three days they did about eight hours total Okay. Out of 12 feeding visits during that time, she only did two. At Nest B, they watched one day for 14 hours, she fed only 6 out of 23 visits. Hmm. So that was 17 and 26% respectively. Right, she, she's
1: doing a small, small right. smaller percentage. Yeah.
0: Compared to a typical rate of around 50%. Okay. Okay. So, I, I should say classical polyandry is rare in birds. Most examples are in the order I want to try to get this right Charadriiformes. hopefully I got that right. This is that's a diverse order of gulls, shorebirds and marine birds like auks and puffins. Okay. So polyandry is apparently in that family. Mm-hmm. But rare in
1: most birds. Wait, can I see can I see how it's spelled? Yeah, look for it. Oh, Charadriiformes. <laughs> yeah. You think so? Well, cuz I've never heard someone confirm the way I say that, (laughs) okay.
0: But let's talk about hatching success. She's running these two nests, right? so the hatching success was typical for a flicker nest, even though the female appeared to divide her feeding effort between the broods. All six chicks fledged from nest A and all seven fledged from nest B. So this greatly benefited this female northern flicker. She fledged 13 young, compared to the mean in that general population, was 5.9, so it was Hmm. over double. She fledged over double of the young. Wow. So, was this a fluke? Well, classical polyandry is not only rare in most birds, it's rare in northern flickers. At this site, there was only one case among 352 nesting attempts monitored over four years. Wow. There were only a few reports of polyandry in any woodpecker species. So this particular paper, they listed seven different examples, Mm -hmm. five of which were from a single population of woodpeckers. I don't remember the species, but that population had a sex bias toward males. So there were way more males around. Right. Those results suggest exceptions to an idea that was presented by this one researcher in 1999, uh, last name of Lignan. He published this
1: huge book on breeding systems in birds. A guy named Lignin doing all oh, the, you know what? <laughs> he should be studying trees, right? Or at least woodpeckers, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah. That's true. He said in Piccadilly,
0: the full contribution of both genders during incubation and brood rearing was required to fledge young. Mm-hmm. He thought that since throughout this whole family, the males and the females both take such an active role, that it must be required. Hm. And she's saying, well, hang on. This, this is an exception to that. Mm-hmm. So a few years later in 09, she did another paper where she really looked at the social and genetic mating system of flickers. And she was linking it to what she called partially reversed sex roles. Mm-hmm. Okay, because in flickers, males seem to take a much more active role than in most.
1: Right, that's, what, that's definitely what it feels like.
0: Yeah. Now, we do have to say, in 90% of avian Species that have biparental care. So if you take all birds where both parents are taking part, mm-hmm. they're socially monogamous. Okay. I, I do want to point out I said socially monogamous. Okay. Not, but 90% of those species have extra pair young, which means the female mated outside the pair bond. Mm-hmm. Okay. But we're going to call that EPP, extra pair paternity. Okay. All right. So you have this pair. We say they're mated. They're monogamous, but the female is mating outside that pair. She's not necessarily raising those young, but she's mating.
1: Okay, so, so let's it's not polyandry. So, so let's call Let's call the extra pair mm-hmm. pool boy chat. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so Bernice has has found another. <laughs> now this,
0: when I was researching this, this led me down a path where, for the longest time. In, in biology, in, in wildlife biology, they assumed like monogamy was considered the rule, hmm. but once we start getting into DNA, right, that's where we get into this distinction between socially monogamous and sexually monogamous. Yeah, okay, that is a distinction. You can have. A pair of animals raising young together—they're mm-hmm. socially monogamous—but you might have the male or a female yeah. having sex with others outside that pair bond.
1: Yeah, and to be fair, aren't we also finding that with humans, with uh, Twenty Three and Me and all that? <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> but this actually led me to a book that I want to check out. It's by a guy named Bruce Bagmill. He's a Canadian <laughs> biologist. He published a book called *Biological Exuberance*, <laughs> subtitled *Animal Homosexuality and Natural Diversity*.
2: Mm-hmm. So.
0: In the, the small excerpt of this book I read, he basically contends that for decades, for the longest time, again, wildlife biology, all these people that were observing these animals, taking notes, they had this bias of, you have a man and a woman, they right. have sex together, they raise a family together, right. that's how it works. like, <laughs> it's the nuclear family. Right. <laughs> yeah. Talk about Jordan Peterson, right? <laughs> but Bagmeal argues in this book uh that a lot of times in history when researchers would look at animals having sex they would just assume it's a male and a female right but maybe it's a female and a
1: female or a male and a male right right? especially when you don't have sexual dimorphism right some of these exactly yeah so his book actually was
0: used i think this was in the early 2000s when here in the united states there were actually still a a, still a lot, a lot of laws on the books in certain states that outlawed sodomy. Oh. And this went to the Supreme Court and this book was cited as, <laughs> was used in the case to help overturn those laws because a lot of times it's
1: argued that... It's only natural or something. Exactly. The yeah, homosexual, but, right.
0: Homosexuality goes against nature.
1: Right. And but, this is proving
0: is like, no, it doesn't go. Right. But but it's it, happening out there.
1: For, I would hope that the Supreme Court, you know, when they saw this argument, they're like, hey, cool book, bro. But the, you know, the appeal to nature logical fallacy shouldn't hold up anywhere. So even before when people were saying it's only natural, you, you should have not taken them seriously in the first place because who cares what's natural because natural doesn't mean good. Right. Right. You shouldn't be flying in planes. Right. right. <laughs> like, for, yeah. <laughs> like, science doesn't tell us how the world should be. It just tells us how the world is. Right. right. So, so uh, no no appeals to nature, guys. <laughs> Anyone listening who's still doing that.
0: <laughs> so, northern flickers are normally socially monogamous. But about 5% of females per year may have two nests at the same time with two different males. So they mm-hmm. may be polyandrous. Now, I do have to say, in the second study, she quoted this statistic of about 5% of females, of northern flicker females, may have two nests at the same time, maybe practicing polyandry. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't find where she got that 5% number from. Mm. From her first study where she was just reporting that they she found a case of polyandry to this study where she was really looking at mating systems of flickers mm-hmm. so i don't know where that was so karen Wybe, if you're out there listening let me know oh god that would
1: be cool <laughs> wouldn't it be cool
0: <laughs> so what is it about certain females that cause them to become polyandrous and what's the reproductive
1: payoff <laughs> i mean it seems obvious well they have more offspring but let's see right i mean definitely so can you remind me I, I before we move forward i want to move backwards a little bit yeah. can you remind me uh, at least like in terms of the time what what was the temporal distance between the two nests only about a week so the fee- and obviously there wasn't a difference in how many birds survived you know and, and fledged right. and all that so uh, this is this was my this was my thought is that and obviously, if they're doing it, there's got to be a reason for it. They probably evolved to be able to have multiple broods, one after the next. But that, but that's what I was wondering about. Was that I would just assume the second brood would probably have fewer survivors, just because maybe more energy went into the first brood, because obviously the the females using her the resources that are within her own body right. to create those eggs, and um, and well, so you'd imagine that there would be a, a difference, some some type of difference between be the two a broods. a little weaker. Yeah, like yeah. maybe there, there's fewer a bias resources. towards which you know which
0: nest gets well hang on because there's going to be more details coming out about which females do this and why okay 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 so this is it's the focus of theoretical debate right now why Why are these particular females doing this one hypothesis is that their first mate was of low quality hmm. and maybe i know a lot reckon- about that <laughs> <laughs> i think i'm the low quality mate. no i'm kidding Maybe the. Female. I think
1: I think my fiance likes me. I think so. <laughs> You're not of low quality, Steve.
0: <laughs> you would definitely be the uh, second choice, maybe. <laughs> so who doesn't like their in a first world week? where there's third choices? Yeah. I'll take it. <laughs> so, this this hypothesis is tied to female three-toed woodpeckers mm. that, at least in one study, became polyandrous when their primary male proved to be of low quality.
1: The three-toed woodpecker is also a western species, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I've seen one,
0: and up into Canada. Mm-hmm. So this researcher YB hypothesized that for female northern flickers polyandry increased reproductive output but that it was constrained by a fairly even sex ratio in the population.
2: Mm. She
0: did not think at least at the outset that the males the first male was of low quality. So mm. then she did her study. So this go ahead.
1: No, okay, so because you sort of just said something and i just want to elaborate on it before we just in case we don't really uh, say more Circle about back. it so when you're saying it's limited by an even sex ratio mm-hmm. i guess it's not me, ha- happening a lot yeah because they can find a mate right because if there wasn't if you have relatively equal male and female numbers if you just have a bunch of females taking two mates there's gonna be a number of females that won't be able to get their mates. Right. Even one mate, You know, they won't even be able to get, unless the males are also playing a similar game <laughs> where they're also taking multiple females. That is not happening. And that's not happening. Yeah. So yeah, you gotta be fair, you, know? you, yep. you gotta, you gotta <laughs> spread the love. <laughs> so she wanted to analyze
0: the mating system of flickers using DNA markers because she wanted to assess parentage, mm-hmm. right? So during early nesting, get this, they would go out, they would identify where the flickers were using calls, uh-huh. And then they would climb these trees and put in small access doors cut into the trunks.
2: Wow.
0: So they could climb up, open these doors, get out the adults and nestlings. <laughs> a lot of times they would put a net over the hole or something okay. like that. And then they could band them. Wow. And each bird was given a, a unique color band combo. Mm-hmm. So they only had to catch them once and then they could just look at them and know which bird was which. Okay. So. And folks... then they
1: know which ones they get DNA from too. So they can observe them and they can, you know. Right
0: could say oh, I, we, this blood sample is from a bird with an mm-hmm. orange and a yellow band on their right leg and all a right. green and a silver band on their left leg mm-hmm. shout out to the bird banding episode all <laughs> <laughs> oh, right so if you want to find one. out why that might be a little risky to put on more than one band listen to our bird banding mm-hmm. episode so what they did is they also collected blood samples which we already mentioned
1: okay I, I assume the blood samples were for the, the sequencing
0: so there were 326 nestlings Mm-hmm. from 46 monogamous broods and 41 nestlings from 7 polyandrous broods. Can you give me the first number again? Sure. 326 nestlings in uh-huh. 46 monogamous broods uh-huh. and then 41 nestlings from 7 polyandrous broods. Mm. Okay. okay. No. It's not the majority. Let's look the at polyandry. the results. Right, because remember they said it's only going to be about right. maybe up to 5%. Yeah, it's constrained. So let's look at something called Let me see if I can say this right. It's cold out here. Okay. Intraspecific brood
1: parasitism. Okay. What's that? Okay. So intra is within species. Like like intramurals. Oh, intramural. What does mural mean? I don't know, but it's when you play sports amongst people in your own school, right? Right, right. So, yeah. So interspecies would be between between different species, intraspecies would be within the same species. Right. And so, then you said brood, brood parasitism, so they're just, they're laying eggs in their, their uh, family members' nests. Somebody else's nest. <laughs> <Their species. laughs> but it's their close relatives' nest, yeah.
0: No, not their close relative.
1: I'm saying it's in, in, within the same species. Oh, okay. So I'm using the word, I'm using the term generally. Okay, good.
0: Right. So in 83% of the families, all the nestings were related to both social parents. hmm So what that means is there wasn't that extra pair paternity we talked about. Okay. Okay. And just hang on to that. No pool boys. No. (laughs) Hang on to that intraspecific brood parasitism. It's going to come up in just a sec. I'll try. If I can say it, I'll remember it. Okay. Yeah. That's because the other 70% of the monogamous pairs had some offspring related to neither parent. Oh, that's fascinating. Those are nests with IBP, with intraspecific brood parasitism. So you have Mm. these two parents, they have a group of eggs but there's an egg in there that's not related to either of them. Some Hmm. other flicker laid an egg in there. Nests with IBP had one to three parasitic nestlings per brood. So about 5% of the nestlings in the population were being raised by foster parents. Hmm. They only found the parasitic eggs in clusters of breeding flickers in the study area. The densities in these clusters ranged, listen to this, 11 to 35 pairs per square mile. Wow, that's per, a sorry, lot. Sorry, per square kilometer. Oh, that's even more. Yeah. <laughs> that's right, what... it's even more dense, Jeez, right? Jeez, yeah. So out of the seven polyandrous broods, one contained an IBP egg. But that's a frequency similar found to the monogamous broods. So you had all these monogamous broods, they right. had about 17% with parasitic eggs. Mm-hmm. And then in the polyandrous broods, there was about 14%. Huh. In nine of the cases of interbrew parasitism in the population, mm-hmm. they were able to identify. Or I'm sorry, in five of those, they were able to identify the parasitic female. Okay. So who laid that egg? In all, she was a neighbor on an adjacent territory with a nest of her own. And so the male. So she was her own neighbor. In the no, sorry, so <laughs> she laid an egg in the nest of a neighbor.
1: Oh. Okay. okay. So she okay. She didn't have two nests. She had a neighbor and... I know, this is confusing. I know. uh, Man, uh, (laughs) there's a lot going on right now. There is, there is. I'll try to slow down. (laughs) I I feel like like there's a hundred tennis balls being thrown at me all at once and I'm able to swing one or two away, you know.
0: (laughs) So just to kind of restate that. Yeah. So if we're trying to figure out who's laying these eggs, who are the parasitic females? Mm -hmm. It's typically a monogamous female. She has a mate. Okay. And she's... Just going to a neighbor's nest and laying right. an egg. It's sired by her mate. The right. dad is, is her mate, but she's basically just saying, "I filled up my nest. I'm going to lay some eggs in another nest." Mm-hmm. So that's important to point out that she wasn't mating with someone besides her mate mm-hmm. and then laying an egg in somebody else's nest. Right.
1: She's still just. She's completely monogamous. She's just also. She's you know, spreading her wealth. Kind of. She's, you know, dropping one kid off uh, at at someone someone else's else's house house and forgetting about him. Well, (laughs) on purpose. (laughs) On purpose. She's forgetting on purpose. It's a strategy. She
0: never comes back to pick him up. Yeah. (laughs) The timing of the laying in the two nests showed that parasitic females completed their own clutch first, laying one Mm. egg a day, and then added eggs to their neighbor's nests. Mm. In at least three cases, it was apparent that more than one parasitic female was responsible for laying in a nest. Hmm. Now, the parasitic females that they could ID all went on to successfully raise an average of about seven offspring in their own nest. So there's no evidence that this was a result of a failed nesting attempt over a poor quality mate. Hmm. One female that had parasitized her neighbor's nest was also polyandrous. Hmm. Meaning that she simultaneously had offspring in three different nests Being reared by three different males.
2: Wow! Right? She's getting around.
0: So this incident. And there's nothing wrong with that,
2: (laughs) especially in birds. Yeah.
0: (laughs) You were talking about What what is it about these females? Uh huh. What's with them? So now remember, there's only about up to five percent of them
1: in flickers per year, right? Right, right. Because you can't have too many. There's not enough guys to go around.
0: (laughs)
2: Right.
1: Yeah.
0: So within this study, at least the polyandrous females, they were significantly older. Mm. than the monogamous females in the population. Cougars. (laughs) (laughs) And their primary males Uh were older than their secondary males.
1: I told you the pool boy thing. (laughs) It's all coming back to my beautiful analogy.
0: (laughs) The polyandrous females, they laid an average of 15 eggs among their two nests. Wow. Compared with the average clutch size of about
1: 8 for the monogamous females.
0: Mm. So they raised almost twice as many eggs.
1: So the older... The older females, are, they have together. a higher fit, well, yeah, presumably have a higher fitness than the younger females, but it's not because they're laying more in their nest, it's because they're having multiple nests. Right. <laughs> wow. Exactly. But, but again, it's, I say that, but it's only 5% of the older fi- females. Right. Yeah. Or so, not, not 5% of the older, 5% overall, they, all, they tend to be older. And it's up to 5%. Up it to 5%. So folks,
0: yeah. we, we should focus on the fact that this polyandrous activity it's a small percentage. Flickers are right. generally monogamous. It's going to be rare. Right.
1: It's like that seventy-five-pound coyote we talked about. Exactly. <laughs> it's a, not common. It's, it's more of an outlier. outlier. But, but you know, I mean, with uh, up to five percent, that you know, I would—that's actually sort of an outlier. Okay. Yeah. So I know we had a lot of balls in the air. So, so what right. she does in the discussion part. A lot of balls. A lot of analogies, <laughs> metaphors, and a lot of eggs out there. Comparisons to
0: other animals. <laughs> yeah. But. What she does in the discussion is she kind of brings it back and says, okay, mating systems of flickers seem to stand out from those of most birds in three ways. So let me kind of restate those three ways. Mm -hmm. There's complete genetic monogamy among socially monogamous pairs, which is pretty rare. Remember 90% of these birds that seem to be socially monogamous are mating outside the pair, but in this study, these 326 nestlings in monogamous flicker broods, there was none, hmm. okay? So they stand out in that way. Right. Then there's also this presence, the presence of parasitism. IBP, intraspecific Brood Parasitism, is known in less than 3% of bird species. Wow, they're like,
1: they really stand out. Right, yeah. flickers. Yeah.
0: And it appears to be extremely rare even in woodpeckers but northern flickers showed a relatively high prevalence of nests with parasitic eggs. So why this high IBP? Before we get to the third way flickers seem to stand out, let's focus on this IBP. Okay. So, in figuring out hypotheses, you know, it's important to determine context, especially whether or not parasites have their own nest. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of things going on if we're gonna understand all the mechanisms and, you know, the adaptive significance. They do say their sampling wasn't complete enough to identify all the parasitic females, mm-hmm. but even if you're being super conservative, the majority of flicker parasites still had their own
1: nests and mates. Right. So, so they're not cowbird-like. Right. Right. Exactly. Because cowbirds, uh, those beautiful—well, I should say the males are a bit more beautiful than females, but that's true with a number of different bird species. But uh, the males have these bright black bodies and these like really nice brown heads. Right. Um, and they're Icderidae, right or what what's the what's the new world blackbird family oh, you know I'm not sure I'm pretty sure yeah. they're in the same family as like red winged blackbirds we'll put that in yeah. the, the notes, yeah. yeah but uh but th- they i think they never raise their young, correct i think um I think when maybe... they
0: parasitize, they're doing it because they're not going to raise young
1: right, yeah, and uh, I, I think it might have been John Eastman, an author that we bring up from time to time who 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 mentioned this in his book, but he was it's like where does the brown-headed cowbirdness come from, (laughs) you know? (laughs) It just must be, you know, programmed in their DNA or something, you know, because they're clearly not learning it from their parents because the parents are nowhere to be found. Right. (laughs) Yeah, it's got to be programmed in there. Yeah.
0: So these observations about flickers and parasitism, it rules out this idea that they're making the best of a bad job, that there's a lack of nest sites, there's a lack of mates, there's a lack of resources at least as the sole explanation in Flickers for why this is happening. So laying parasitic eggs appears to be a strategy for females to simply increase the number of offspring beyond what they can rear themselves or beyond what they rear themselves. The data suggests that females first completed a clutch with their own mate and then laid parasitic eggs in the nest of a neighbor. In other birds, whether the female lays parasitic eggs before or after her own it can vary according to the ecology of the, the species in question. Hmm. So she's mm-hmm. saying, for future study, we need to look at well, what's the optimal clutch size? You know, is are there fitness gains to laying more eggs in one's own nest versus another's nest? Yeah, you no, know, these are things we got to look at.
1: Yeah, I, I, I also just feel like there, there's probably like, I don't know, like the geometry of the of the nest, the hole they're in. Oh. Yeah, I I just feel like those can only get so big sometimes. Oh, that's true, yeah. (laughs) uh, Because the hole is definitely dependent on the tree size, right? Right. So So this is, like a lot of the things we cover, we're not really
0: sure what the story is behind the parasitism. Right. But it it doesn't seem that... They're having a
1: rough time, so they're just dumping off their eggs in somebody else's nest. And it's important to remember that anything that Bill and I just say in passing, it, we're just making guesses or, yeah, or guess. even, or sometimes even throwing things out there that we assume is wrong and right. you know, what, the other one's going to correct and us. if you know better, call us out on it. <laughs> yeah, <you>. yeah.
0: <laughs> so the third point about why flickers are so freaky when it comes to, <laughs> to breeding uh-huh. is what we can call facultative polyandry. Mm. This classical polyandry, it's only found in about 2% of avian species. Man,
1: every time I say facultative, you make me define it. So I'm going to make you define it this time. So you can have obligate, mm-hmm. something that's obligate, species have to do it. Yeah, and now you're obligated to tell
0: us what facultative <laughs> means. Facultative <laughs> means it can happen depending on a situation, Yeah. okay? Some birds are obligate migrants. Mm-hmm. Some birds are facultative migrants. Well, they'll migrate if conditions warrant it. Yeah. So. Again, classical polyandry only found in 2% of avian species in the northern flickers it seems to be opportunistic because it occurred either when a male lost a mate early in the season or failed to attract one. These trios, the female and two males, usually involved nearest neighbors. But in this study one female flicker did travel over a kilometer between her two mates. Mm. So the nests were Was that the nearest somewhat neighbor? Somewhat far apart. It doesn't say if it was the nearest Mm -hmm. neighbor, but she did travel pretty far. (laughs) So what she is saying though is, in most of the polyandrous broods, they were neighbors, they were close together. So the female had had a nest with her primary male, Mm -hmm. the older male, and then she took up with this other male close by. Right. The reproductive payoffs to these females were considerable. And we've said this a couple of times, they reared nearly twice as many offspring as the monogamous moms. Right. But it appeared that the secondary males only engaged in polyandry to make the best of a bad job <laughs> this is in contrast to the findings in a 2006 study that suggested females flickers doing this were trying to salvage a failed or failing reproductive attempt For mm-hmm. this study that was not the case it right. seemed with any of their polyandrous
1: broods right and, and okay. even still it's still a small number of females doing this yeah, yeah. exactly less than five percent five percent or less
0: and the secondary males were more often yearling breeders which may explain their difficulty in retaining or attracting a monogamous partner, mm. right? Hmm. So the data on the division of the, the paternal effort, the caring for the young and these polyandrous trios, there's still not a lot, but it's clear that females contributed to incubation at both nests hmm. because hatching success is severely impacted if the female doesn't do any.
1: Right, so even if she's just doing 17% and right. 25%, right. the it's male still, just upped his right, incubation. Right.
0: And like you just said, the females did incubate less at the nest, especially of the secondary male.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, you had said, I brought up those percentages before. Did they find that that was typical? Because didn't you say it was more typical to be 50-50, right? Yes. But is that in other species or in flickers? In woodpeckers. In woodpeckers. And and in flickers, it was tough because
0: in one spot, it did make reference that males do more of the incubation mm, in okay. flickers. But then there was another spot where it said it was typical that it was 50-50. Okay. So... So,
1: it, it could depend on the population you're studying, you know. Right, that's and, true and, too. and that's why researchers will always say the, the, the population that they're studying. <laughs> right. And, <laughs> because and, it's important. Because when you make a claim about a particular species, you have to make sure you make that same claim about a particular species in a particular area. And I'm glad you brought that up because yes. I, I might have forgotten that, that. This study, and I'm sure
0: the researcher would go out of her way to say this, this is studying one population of flickers at one site in British Columbia. hmm All right. So to get back to what we were saying before though, the polyandrous females, they did feed the nestlings, but they seem to just divide their total effort, (laughs) not up their effort in order to service both nests. They basically say, this is what I normally would give to one nest. I'm just dividing it between the two. Okay. You're not getting more out of me, kids. Right, (laughs) right. right. So the nests of polyandrous females, they seem to have high success because males completely compensate for the reduced contribution of the females. (laughs) So some final thoughts on this study. Polyandry in these flickers, it seems the most profitable strategy for females and the least profitable for males. Yeah. In contrast, the parasitism, the intra parasitism is equally beneficial to both sexes. The relatively high frequency of this should lead to selection for intense nest guarding to prevent parasitism of one's own nest. Right. And in turn, this constrains mate guarding by males it's puzzling they say why female northern flickers appear not to engage in extra pair paternity when even though they have ample opportunity hmm. okay because if there's this high level of parasitism going on right then you figure there's going to be more nest guarding the male's going to be saying hey i'm going to be watching out for people trying to dump off eggs so they won't be able to guard their mate as much okay so why aren't the females
1: mating outside the social pair bond right, right? that's just it's a question Right. right right, right. right. All right. Although, so you said it's beneficial to the females right. to have multiple nests, and that it's not as beneficial to the males. Right. But, but part of me thinks it is beneficial to the males. Why? The, the second male, because those are males that probably wouldn't have found a mate anyway. It's a good point, but it's yeah. not beneficial to the primary male. Right. Yeah, it definitely seems like... Because he's raising the same amount of young, but he's doing <laughs> twice as much. <laughs> right, right. So I would say the second male is definitely getting an advantage of being able to mate... And even if he has to put the extra work in to feed the young, right. you know, at least he got to mate. That's like right. infinitely better than what could have happened. Right. <laughs> so, all right. So I'm looking at our time. We're over an hour.
0: So I, I do have another study to go to, but I think I'm just going to do highlights for this one uh, because she did another follow-up study in 2018, mm. looking at different reproductive parameters like clutch size and, and earlier egg laying. And just a couple points I wanted to share was that one, get this, so. We've talked about before on other episodes how, when females lay eggs earlier, that can lead to higher success when it comes to fledging young. Mm-hmm. And what they found in this study is that when female flickers mate with older males, they lay eggs earlier. Oh. Hmm. So, I mean, I think that's just a cool question. Like, why would it matter the age of the male? Why would that have an impact on? the date of egg-laying. Why would that allow female to lay an egg earlier? Right. right. So what they found, what they hypothesized, is that if you're an older male, uh-huh. you know your territory better.
2: Oh. So you're
0: better able to return to a nest you already excavated, okay. or find a nest, or know where all choose the a is. tree that's more suitable, <laughs> right. right? And they also find that the longer a pair is together, Mm-hmm. That's going to allow for earlier egg laying. That, that makes sense <laughs> because when you return for migration, you don't have to waste time finding and
1: searching for a mate and, you know, proving to that mate that you're right. a good, good match. Do they have, I, I don't know what it's called, but if a young returns to the same place it was born, that's like natal homing. So these guys return to their same nesting spaces each year? That I'm not sure about. Okay.
0: Uh, but that was one of the, the parts that I just found interesting is that these polyandrous females and even regular flicker females mm-hmm. there seems to be a benefit to choosing an older male right that, because then you mate earlier and, but, and a bunch of reproductive parameters increased they, they were more successful <laughs> if they had an older mate
1: i wonder if the the older males are beefier and i wonder what they mean by older you know what i mean like
0: there there wasn't a big physical
1: difference right. cuz the older ones could be still in the prime of their lives
0: yeah, you know <laughs> yeah.
1: do you do you know they're longevity
0: if they don't live for very long mm-hmm. so that was actually something that I, I've skipped over okay is I can't remember exactly but it was very rare for them to find one that was older than four or five years old okay okay uh, and the likelihood of a flicker returning to where they nested the year before and mm-hmm. finding and mating with the same mate was low it was like less than 20 wow. percent um, just because mortality was so high
1: hmm. yeah right. I wonder I wonder uh what gets them
0: yeah, I didn't go into that.
2: Cats. It's cats. <laughs> cats. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. The northern flicker, it's a bird that we encourage everybody to get out there and see. If you're in North America, you can find it almost anywhere in North America. Look for that big white rump patch, rum right. patch. Listen for that long ki call that is kind of monotone, doesn't change its pitch, unlike right. the pileated woodpecker. And if you're lucky enough, see if you can find a female flicker that seems to be servicing two nests at one time polyandris
1: and i guess maybe we should end on the question everyone's wondering about why is it called a flicker (laughs) i don't know (laughs) i don't know either you know when i think of something that should be called a flicker i think of like a phoebe an eastern phoebe right flicking its tail (laughs) flicking its tail right but i don't know about the northern flicker that's a very good question if i can find an answer i'll put it in the
0: episode notes cool okay (laughs) all right and before we do our our complete wrap-up I do just want to say thank you to one of our listeners, Jake Mantella. We had put out a call, I don't know, a few episodes ago saying, hey, if anyone would like to read our Patreon supporters for the month, Mm -hmm. let us know. Contact us through email or social media and we'll set it up so you can record yourself reading the list and we'll put that into the episode
1: yeah and and Jake even went beyond that he like added some extra stuff in and and we totally invite that if anyone wants to do this you know add something in we'll edit most of it out but (laughs) (laughs) yeah Jake sent us about two hours of it (laughs) yeah I think we kept everything that Jake said we did we did and and
0: Jake had a great voice for uh, podcasting so maybe he should start his own podcast no
1: no 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 (laughs) (laughs) not a nature podcast yeah yeah like a race car podcast or something yeah
0: (laughs) all right So I think it's time to thank the patrons.
1: Yeah. So first and foremost, we'd like to thank our growing list of Patreon supporters. So thank you, Todd Elliott and Lily Case. Thank you guys so much for supporting the show. And we're thankful for every patron, but every episode we'd like to thank our top patrons. So thank you. We named the dog Indy, Sarah S, Rob M, Melissa Marie in Dusty, Arizona, (laughs) M.D., Lauren S, Kelly S, Judy F, John W, Jeff S, Jane H, Jake M., Helen A, Goose Egg, Galen Mack, Esther C, DoodleDude82, Celia, Bethany H, Ben C, Andy T, Andrew, Jonathan A, Todd E, Sean C, Rich K, Rachel L, The Drunk Phytologist, it's all one thing, Orange Julian, Ken S, Callie S, Jessica D, Diane F, Daniel M, The Hebranks, Eric G, and... Alyssa P. <laughs> Thank you guys. Thank you all so much. Thank
0: you. So, yeah. Melissa in Dusty, Arizona. I'm pretty sure that's Melissa from uh, Buffalo Audubon, formerly oh, of Buffalo I Audubon. Oh, I
1: forgot. I yes. should have made the connection that yeah. she moved to Arizona and now we have uh, <laughs> Melissa from AC. And shout out
0: to the Hebranks. They were uh, taking part in the birdathon and they were asking me the other night uh, when we were putting out a new episode. So, yeah. Here you are, just for you, the Hebrake.
1: <laughs> this one's dedicated to the Hebrake. That's right. <laughs> and we also want to thank our new iTunes reviewers. So from the U.S. we have Nordy nine nine nine, and from Canada we have Hummingbird Tattoo, Rye J Hill, Peachy uh, Peach Emoji Jess, <laughs> Jenna seven six four three and joey jojo senior shabadoo that is from the simpsons (laughs) oh really (laughs) when i see jojo i think of jojo's bizarre adventure so it's not a simpsons thing for me but well joey jojo thank you so much (laughs) (laughs) nice so we have no updates from the uk but we do have one from one new one from australia that's sad in oz sad in oz um, and so Bill and I, we forget to thank people from other countries. We've been forgetting for a long time. Yeah. So I just wanted to start fresh by updating the countries that I've already touched on before. But from now on, hopefully, we'll try to remember and hit other countries that have also given us reviews yeah. on iTunes and, and other podcatchers. But I just went for iTunes this time. So that was all of them? Yeah. <laughs> <So> <laughs> not I, mean, not that many. I was talking for like 10 minutes.
0: No, I mean from other countries. Oh, right, right, right. <laughs> I mean, these
1: were just updates. The list is longer than this. Okay. But we already yeah. said them in previous episodes. All right.
0: So folks, if you want to support the podcast, you can become a patron. And if you want to do that, you can head over to patreon.com. You can also make a one-time donation through our website via PayPal. Those donations will allow us to keep the podcast going, keep it free, and allow us to do cool things in the future. But if you're like Steve and you can't afford to financially support a podcast, (laughs) that's true. one of the best things you can do is leave a review for us on itunes or whatever podcatcher you use we really do appreciate it and it gets us out in front of other people that might enjoy the podcast
1: yeah you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna blow up my spot here but i could financially support a podcast i'm just thinking about i'm like i don't have any monthly subscriptions do i i am on funimation because you know I like anime sure (laughs) (laughs) i pay 7.99 a month yeah all right so like
0: steve (laughs) used to be (laughs) right
1: right yeah i'm living i'm a rich person now so i can i can afford anything and
0: folks, check out our social media feeds, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have an episode suggestion, uh, an episode criticism, or you just like to get in touch with us, you can email us at thefieldguides at gmail.com. Yeah. And don't forget, you can check us out at our home on the
1: web at thefieldguidespodcast.com. We instantly get criticism of saying, Steve said he's rich. <laughs> and I know he said he's a PhD student. <laughs> yeah, I lied. I'm not rich. <laughs> I can vouch for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks. As a
0: final reminder, please make sure, parents, get those kids outside, let them get muddy, let them get dirty, let them flip over rocks and logs, and the rest of you out there, make sure you get yourselves outside as well. Enjoy the spring, folks, and whatever season you're listening to this episode in.
1: Yep. All right, folks, we will see you next month, hopefully. And we'll actually see you in a few seconds when we talk about gum leaf (laughs) USA. Oh, that's right.
0: (laughs) Oh my gosh. Sorry, Jack.
2: (laughs) Oof.
1: the obligatory scene change to talk about Gumleaf USA. <laughs> so folks,
0: we want to thank our sponsor, Gumleaf USA. They make high quality rubber boots. And right now I am standing uh, shin deep in a stream. And what am I doing? <laughs>
1: and Steve is perched on rocks because he did not wear his Gumleaf boots today. No. And again, like the last episode or every episode we bring this up, mine are just in my trunk. <laughs>
0: <laughs> just about a hundred yards away. Yeah. <laughs>
1: So, Gumleaf has been kind enough to provide Steve
0: and I with uh, boots, and we have used them for everything from birding to herping to standing going in to a stream. stream. <laughs> Any season of the year, they come with lots of bells and whistles, and because they're made of 85% natural rubber, mm-hmm. they can bend many, many more times than rubber boots that might look the same and might cost less, but are not as high quality as Gumleaf USA boots.
1: Yeah, and and personally I like low wet areas because the chance of ticks in lower (laughs) wet areas, very minimal.
2: That's right.
0: And Gumleaf is kind enough to offer patrons of our podcast free shipping on any of their orders. The offer code is on our Patreon site if you become a patron. Yeah. So check out
1: gumleafusa.com. Thanks guys, and this time we'll see you next month. See you next month.